Let's go ahead and bow our heads and close our eyes and go to our Father in prayer. Lord, our sins are many, but your mercy is more. We just pause and just want to thank you for the wonders of the cross and all that the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. You said that you were in Christ reconciling the world to yourself. Thank you, Spirit of God, that you gave God the Son the very power to approach the cross as you have written and inspired in your word. And we want to learn more of the way you operate in our lives. And so tonight we pray that as our teacher, as our helper, as the one who you wrote would guide us into all the truth, that tonight your presence would be known here and real. So help me, guide me, fill me, and use me, I pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. If you are joining us for the first time, we are in a series uh, for our Institute of Biblical Studies. It's entitled Basic Discipleship. This is what is offered on Sunday morning in our discovery class, our 45-week course. And so this is just a sample, a snippet of some of the material you get as you study. So there are a number of objectives that we had. I'll not read through them, but last week we looked at the promise of an abundant life. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Yet for many a believer today, the Christian life is something they endure. It's not a rich, abundant life because they don't really understand the filling ministry of the Spirit. We studied from the Old Testament how God prophesies of new life in the Spirit, a new covenant where God would take a heart of stone and turn it soft into a heart of flesh. Then we studied how the New Testament fulfills those promises of new life. And then we looked at, because of the church age that we're in, because the Spirit has now been given, you could take basically everyone in this world and categorize them into one of three sections. They're either natural men. A natural man basically does what comes natural. He's a man without God, without Christ, without heaven, without hope. He's physically alive, but he is spiritually dead. To use the words of Jude, he's devoid of the Spirit. The second category of people we studied last week was that of a spiritual man. It's more than a spirit-filled believer, but it's someone who over the course of time has walked consistently filled with the Spirit. And that's one of our goals in this section, to learn what it means to be filled with the Spirit and how the Spirit of God can consistently fill us. And as we consistently walk out of in the fullness of the Spirit, we become spiritual men. It doesn't mean we've arrived, but we have a grown up in a growing relationship with God. And then the third kind of person that we looked at was a carnal man. So a natural man basically does what comes natural. A spiritual man does what comes supernatural. But a carnal man does what comes unnatural. You could render it a fleshly person, a worldly person. But we're describing someone who's been born again, but because they haven't grown, they have a lot of characteristics of an unbeliever. And with that, we give some caution that while we enter into this new life as infants, as babes in Christ, if someone doesn't grow, if someone doesn't exhibit some evidences that they've had a second birth, then we ended with great caution not to just write them off as a carnal Christian because the reality is, is that for many of these people, they've never met the Lord. They know the plan of salvation. 
They can give textbook answers on how to be saved, but they've never met Jesus personally. All right, that's all by way of review. That 11-page handout is available online. You can print it out and listen to it. Tonight, we want to begin Roman numeral number two. Why talk about being filled with the Spirit? Let's begin with this first paragraph. It says, as we noted in the previous section with the death of the Messiah, because God could promise the people of Israel, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more, he was able to establish a new covenant, which Jesus reaffirmed at the Lord's table. So remember, your Bible has two halves, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the New Covenant, the New Testament in the broadest sense. The New Covenant forever changed um, the relationship that a believer could have with the triune God through the indwelling presence of the Spirit. Unlike Old Testament believers who might have a limited relationship with the Spirit, and if you were here for my course on pneumatology, we saw that there was no more than 500 individuals in the Old Testament who had any kind of a relationship with the Spirit of God, and there it was limited. And so while they might have a, new, a limited relationship, all New Covenant believers now have a permanent relationship with the Spirit. And so Psalm 51, the confessional prayer of David after he commits adultery, he says, Lord, take not your Holy Spirit from me. That's an Old Testament prayer. No New Testament saint would ever pray that today because as you can see, the cross-reference there, uh, John 14, 16, the promises is that now the Spirit lives in us and He's there forever. So however, while all true believers are permanently indwelt by the Spirit, not all true believers are consistently walking filled with the Spirit. And so the assumption in passages like Romans 8, 9, Ephesians 1 that we studied last week is that the moment you believe you're indwelt with the Spirit, and Jesus said He's in you forever. He'll be in you in your resurrected body. He'll be in you when you serve the Lord in the millennial kingdom and even in eternity future. But while He may be indwelling you, it doesn't necessarily mean He's filling you. And so the command in Scripture is not to get the Spirit. It's assumed is true or you're not a believer, not at this point in God's work, but you are commanded to be filled with the Spirit. So let's talk about some of the ministries of the Spirit and why we would focus on this particular ministry, the filling ministry. So let's think our way through it. First, the ministries of the Spirit at conversion. There are a number of ministries of the Spirit that simultaneously take place on the very day that we receive Christ as our Savior. And if you're new, we've got some blanks because people are taking this in the Institute of Biblical Studies and they fill it in. So just do your best. And if you miss a blank, go back and listen. Maybe the Lord would want you to hear it again, right? But I'll try to be sensitive. There is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit by which God takes up permanent residence in our bodies making us a temple of the Spirit, right? Don't you know, Paul says, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Couldn't be said of an Old Testament believer. God had a temple for His people under the New Covenant. God has a people who are His temple. In John 14, 16, and 17, in the upper room, Jesus revealed to His apostles a new relationship the Spirit of God would have in our lives. Listen to these words, I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper that He may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth 
whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. So let's think through those verses. He promised to ask the Father to give them another helper, whom on the one hand, unlike the people of this world, the Lord Jesus said that his disciples already know him. They knew him in a relational sense to some degree. Most of the people of the world are totally ignorant of the Spirit, although the Lord Jesus that night reminded his disciples that they know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Let's think through that distinction. The Holy Spirit is described in two relationships with Christ's disciples, and that he had been with them, but he was going to be in them. The disciples, for three years, knew about the person of the Spirit, and the sense they had witnessed the Lord do so many miracles that he testified that he did so, he did by the power of the Spirit. That great messianic passage is quoted when Jesus goes into the synagogue in Nazareth. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach. And the Pharisees, they couldn't deny the power working through him. On one day he did a triple miracle and of course they said he did it by Beelzebul or Beelzebub, both terms used in Scripture, Old and New Testament, of the same demon head, namely Satan. You did it by Satan, and Jesus showed how illogical they were. Eight, Jesus did what he did by the power of the Spirit, and so he reminds his men and us that since he is going to send another, just like himself, namely the Spirit, He can say, I will not leave you as orphans. You remember, he said, I'll send another, meaning the Spirit. And there are two words for another. There's the word another of a different kind and another of the exact same kind in Greek. Heteros is the word for another of a different kind. And so we speak of heterosexuality, say. Alos is another of the same kind, meaning exactly, if I said, would you give me a heteros biblios, you could give me any Bible you could find. But if I said, I want an alos biblios, you'd have to give me another Bible exactly like this, underlined where it is, torn page that stuck to my arm and sweat while I was in Israel, still haven't fixed it. Um, Another one just like it. And that's what Jesus is saying here. I'm going to send you another just like me. And so the Spirit is so much like Jesus that in Romans 8, 9, Romans chapter 8, verse 9, if you're new to the Bible, the first number represents the chapter. The second number represents the verse. People ask me that in the discovery class, and someone laughed one day. We don't laugh in the discovery class. People are new to the Bible. They don't know anything sometimes. He is called the Spirit of Christ in Romans 8, 9. And for this reason, the Lord Jesus can equally promise, I will come to you. I'll not leave you as orphans. I will come. Why? Because, again, the members of the Godhead are inseparable. And technically, we could say and document it from the New Testament that every member, Father, Son, and Spirit, indwells the new covenant believer. But the emphasis, of course, is placed in the Spirit. The principal distinction between the Spirit's work and the two covenants 
is between the Holy Spirit's presence and the Holy Spirit's indwelling. So when you think Old Covenant, he was present. New Covenant, he indwells. Ezekiel 36, 26 tells us it is the difference between a heart of stone and a heart of flesh. For God predicted, he prophesied, I will put my spirit within you such that one's body becomes a temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. This is all accomplished through the indwelling ministry of the Spirit. So again, you know, he indwells us. He creates a new sensitivity to the things of God. A heart of stone now visualized as a soft, pliable heart of flesh. So that's one major ministry of the Spirit in the New Testament. In addition, also happening at the moment of conversion is the baptizing ministry of the Spirit. And both ministries, again, are assumed to be true of every believer. It's assumed to be true. The baptism of the Holy Spirit may be defined as that work of the Spirit where he places us into union, into union with Christ and with all other believers. We call that union the body of Christ. And so wherever you go in the world, there's an immediate affinity when you meet another born-again brother or sister. It's just like you've known them forever. There's a kinship because you're members one of another, Paul will say, to the Corinthians. The baptism of the Spirit was predicted by John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus right before he ascended into heaven also prophesied it. He said, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. John said, look, the one who's coming, I baptize with water, he's going to baptize you with the Spirit and with fire, speaks of another baptism. I'm not even worthy to untie his, his sandal. So John spoke of this coming baptizing work because he knew what the prophets had written. And Jesus there in the Mount of Olives said, not many days from now. So in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13, what we call a central passage, if that's a new term to you that's used by pastors, theologians, and so forth to describe a major text that would teach a particular doctrine. And so while there might be, you know, Two dozen texts say that address the subject of spiritual gifts. There are four central texts that address the subject. And so a central text would be a major text on a particular theological subject. And that's important for you to know because if you start reading good books, you'll see these terms and the authors don't always define it. So that's a central passage in the Bible concerning the present-day baptizing ministry of God the Holy Spirit. And so Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. And of course, that's a new picture. And this is what blew Peter away in Acts 10, when Cornelius and his household, or Cornelius if you prefer, um, received the Spirit in the exact same way that they did. Because it wasn't that they didn't think that Gentiles could be saved, they were to be a light to the Gentiles, Isaiah and others wrote. But what they didn't understand is that God in the church age was going to now work through a united body of Jew and Gentile 
brought together. The dividing wall, to quote Ephesians, has been removed, and he's made us one. All made to drink of one spirit. Notice, we're all baptized into one body. That is, all true believers have had this, his baptism. For the Spirit's baptism is synonymous with salvation. So none can say it is a special experience for only a few. And we'll come to that because there are groups that like create this elite status within Christianity and they're just so wrong and so twisted and so confused. And most of the time, many times, they don't even have the gospel. As you study God's word, it becomes clear even to the English reader that the word baptism can have both a literal and figurative meaning. It can have both a literal and figurative meaning. The literal usage means to immerse or to dip, such that if you lived in Paul's day and you wanted to dye a white garment blue, you would take it to the fuller and the fuller would baptize it into blue dye. And so that's why baptism, of course, in the New Testament is done by immersion. When someone sprinkles someone or pours on them and they call it baptism, it's just like an oxymoron. It's not even close to being true. Because there are words to describe both of those actions in the New Testament, but it's never used in reference to the ordinance of baptism. And only immersion, of course, can picture death, burial, and resurrection. And that's what you're confessing before men by symbol that you're saved. While the literal meaning is to immerse, the word baptize can also have a figurative meaning in verses like 1 Corinthians 10 too, when Paul recalls the children of Israel's experience with Moses. You remember that text? It's an incredible chapter. Most of us at least have verses 12 and 13 memorized, right? Let him who thinks he stands be careful lest he fall and so on. But he illustrates that principle in the first 11 verses. And he starts, he opens the chapter by saying, for I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Paul said they were baptized into Moses in crossing the sea, but they clearly did not get wet. And so the figurative meaning is in view. When they stepped out with Moses into that dry riverbed with a wall of water on each side, they were identified with Moses, knowing that Moses was leading them by God's direction. And so that's one of the figurative usages of baptism in the New Testament, when you are identified in some respect. In this case, they were identified with Moses in his leadership. 1 Corinthians 10.2 is one of many verses reminding us that when the word baptize appears, it is not always a reference to water baptism. Many times, baptism has nothing to do with water. And so John the Baptist, for instance, speaks of a baptism with fire, which, by the way, has nothing to do with what our dear Pentecostal friends make it out to. Because if you read the next verse... He is describing how there's coming a time when the Messiah is going to judge the world and he's going to separate the wheat from the chaff and he's going to burn up the chaff with an unquenchable fire. And of course, if you're here for the Lord's table, that was one of the questions that John asked. Well, we know you're the suffering servant. Why aren't you ruling and reigning and judging? And 
John didn't understand. He wasn't questioning the identity of the Messiah, but he didn't understand the timing of Messiah's ministry. And God, of course, was unfolding it progressively. So when Romans 6, 3 states that they were baptized into Christ Jesus, right? You know that verse? Sometimes I quote it in the baptism because it's illustrative of spirit baptism. Uh, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase because where there is more sin, there's more grace. And so don't think someone's in a deficit if they're in some kind of a home where their mother's a prostitute or their dad's a drunk or their parents are homosexual. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Well, if grace abounds all the more, I might sin all the more. May may it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Yes, we have. He's not speaking of water here. He's speaking water can't put you into Christ Jesus. Only the Spirit of God can do that. So someone sent me a doctrinal statement. They said, oh, our grandkids are getting baptized and we're all excited and I haven't responded to them and told me this church in town and I didn't even know this church believed it, but I saw their doctoral statement for the first time and they go to Romans 6 and Mark 16 and Acts 2.38 and they're teaching baptism as part of the means to salvation. That's not good. This is not a water verse. This is a verse that is describing God putting us into Jesus Christ. Remember, the words in Christ, did I read 25? Yeah, okay. A water does not place one into Christ. The words in Christ are the simplest definition and description of a Christian in the New Testament. If any man is in Christ, this is one of the hundred verses every believer should know. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old or his old life, depending on the rendering, has passed away, and all things have become new. You're in Christ. That's the simplest definition of a believer. You are in him. And the Spirit identifies him and brings you into the body of Christ. So much so that when Paul is persecuting the church, Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul hadn't laid a hand on Jesus, had never possibly seen him before until the Damascus Road. We don't know definitively. But to persecute his church was to persecute Jesus because he's the head and we are members of the body. So these passages, 27, teach us the moment we believe, the split second we believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior, we are baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ. We are identified with Jesus by being placed into the body of Christ, made up of all true believers, making us brothers and sisters in Christ. So if we become children of God, that makes us brothers and sisters. Now, I know the world uses it. Last night on TV, on Fox News, I was watching this politician again use, oh, we're all God's children. No, we're not. We're all created in his image. We're made in his likeness. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. And that's what unites us. That gives us a kinship. And if you've been born again, the kinship just goes across economic, socioeconomic, race, everything. 
Those are not issues to the true born-again child of God. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 states, and that's why all this wokeness nonsense, like we need to be alert to, to racial problems. No, we are to preach the gospel, and when we preach the gospel and people come into the body of Christ and they grow, that solves the racial problems because he makes us brothers and sisters in Christ. But they've put the cart before the horse. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 states that all have been baptized because all have been made to drink of one spirit, meaning he resides in us. The same spirit of God that lives in me lives in you if you know him. Nowhere after Pentecost are believers ever told to be baptized with, in, or even by the spirit or to ever seek this in any way. For this is accomplished for every believer. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you were sealed in him with the spirit of promise. We studied that last week. Or Romans 8, 9. If you don't have the spirit of God, you're not one of his. So on this side of Pentecost, you're never, you know, commanded to be baptized with the spirit. It's assumed to be true. The sailing ministry, another ministry, of the Spirit also takes place at the time of our conversion, setting us apart as a secure child of God. The Greek word translated as seal, and I gave it for those who might be interested, was used to guarantee a document. In the Septuagint, it's used that way, the Greek translation, to indicate ownership, and it's true in the Hebrew as well, Song of Solomon's, or to protect against tampering. A seal was placed in the tomb of Christ. And if anyone broke that seal, they had to contend with the Roman government. And even in the Revelation. The seal usually was made from hot wax, which was placed on the the document and then impressed with a signet ring, officially marking it as under the authority of the person with the signet. Every once in a while, someone gets fancy, right? And they send you a letter and there's a little piece of wax and there's an impression on it and... It's cool, but you know, it's not on the same level, obviously, when it was done in the first century. The signet ring of a governor or someone, it had great authority behind it. In biblical times, a seal was a guarantee. And so the Spirit of God who lives in us marks us or seals us as God's child. The seal of the Spirit takes place when a person believes the gospel serving as a heavenly mark that we truly belong to Jesus Christ. And so I just quoted this in him. You also, after listening to the message, the gospel, having believed what you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. He's given as a pledge. Look at 36. The Holy Spirit is our pledge. The Old English says earnest. Some newer translations say down payment. You know what earnest money is. The, the real estate agent says, give me five grand if you're serious on buying this house. They want 5,000 earnest money. And if you back out, they keep your 5,000. And so the Spirit of God is God's earnest, and God never rescinds on a promise. He never backs out. 
And so he's given as a pledge, an earnest or a dime payment that what God began, he will finish, right? He that began a good work in you, Philippians, will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. For Ephesians 4.30 indicates that his seal remains unbroken for the day Jesus returns for us from heaven. So we just read in Ephesians 1.13, we're sealed in him. And then in verse 30 of chapter 4, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And so in our discovery class, in our basic discipleship course, the first handout, we established the doctrine of eternal security on a number of aspects, but one, how the Father secures us, how the Son secures us, and how the Spirit of God secures us. And this would be one of those verses. The fact that all believers are sealed with the Spirit is also seen in verses like 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22. Paul said to the Corinthians, now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. Again, there's that term. The Spirit of, is God's signature and God's authority that in essence shouts this, this person marked by my Spirit is an authentic child of mine who is destined for citizenship in my eternal kingdom as a member of my family. Praise God for that, right? An illustration of God marking and separating his people is seen during the great tribulation period as God's angels are told they cannot begin to pour out God's wrath until they have sealed his bondservants. Do you remember that? Revelation 7, let me just turn there real fast. And the last book in the Bible, if you're following, but you can just listen. I'll be, by the time maybe you find it, I'll be done. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. So there's 144,000 Jewish evangelists. They're miraculously converted. We're not told how, but nonetheless, they believe in Yeshua as the Messiah and they preach the gospel to the whole world. The great commission is fulfilled and nobody can wipe them out. You can't kill them. <laughs> I love it. They're just supernaturally supermen. Yeah, boom, 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 boom. Can't kill them, man. They're protected. God marks a group of 144,000 Jewish evangelists who are chosen and protected by God to preach the gospel. When the Spirit seals a believer, he marks him as a child of God and as a divine possession, officially and eternally belonging to God. So you don't mess with God's kids. Beginning on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit began permanently indwelling believers, fulfilling the promise of God to never forsake us, to never forsake us. We might also add that the moment we are indwelled, baptized, and sealed by the Spirit, we are also gifted by Him for service. People ask me sometimes, when do you get a spiritual gift? The moment you're converted, and you're gifted for Him by service. Since spiritual gifts, and there are 20 in the New Testament, and that's one of the courses in the Institute some of you might consider taking. Uh, the day God saved you, he not only put the Spirit in you, the Spirit of God gave you at least one spiritual gift that you didn't have prior to conversion, that as you grow, it will manifest itself. Just like a baby that grows, manifests natural talents, physical abilities, etc. As you begin to grow, your spiritual gift is manifested. And so we're gifted for service. And since spiritual gifts are from the Spirit, we can say with certainty that the spiritually dead person, meaning the unbeliever, does not possess these gifts. 
That's why when I meet some of my Pentecostal and Charismatics who have come to this church and they've told me they've spoken in tongues and I ask them how to get into heaven and they don't even know the plan of salvation. Well, whatever they had, it wasn't from the Spirit of God because only born-again people are given spiritual gifts. And And I'm not even saying that gift is given today. I'm just saying that only born-again people are given spiritual gifts. There is no particular verse that tells us the exact time when we receive a spiritual gift. But letting Scripture interpret Scripture, the answer is clear. That we receive a spiritual gift at the moment of conversion. Spiritual gifts are given so the church can function properly, right? He speaks about these different gifts in Ephesians 4 for the building up of the body so we can reach the maturity that belongs to the fullness of Christ. And he gives these leadership gifts, but then he describes how each and every part is essential to the functioning of the body. I can't function as a pastor teacher apart from all the various gifts in the body of Christ that work together. Spiritual gifts are given so the church can function properly. And since it is expected that we will use our gifts and will someday be held accountable When we are saved, we are equipped to serve. So Peter says, as each one has received a special gift, employ it, use it, in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And that's one of the things, if you're here in the series that we're on right now, that God's prophetic schedule, one of the messages is the judgment of the just. And one aspect of God's evaluation of us in heaven How he rewards us is how we use our spiritual gift. You say, I don't even know what spiritual gifts are. I don't even know that I have one. Well, you better find out because God's going to hold you accountable. And in a church like this, you cannot plead, well, I was just ignorant. As good stewards, it's important that we use the gifts that God has given us until we go home to be with the Lord at death or until Christ returns for his church. We're never to stop using our gifts because God never retracts them. And so that principle is established for the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. The ministries of the Spirit after conversion. So those are some of the ministries before. Let's talk about after. There are ministries of the Spirit that happen at our conversion, and there are various ministries of the Spirit in us after our conversion. A divine book, we call it the Bible, must have a divine teacher so that its message can be revealed on a spiritual level. And so as Christians, we experience this reality through the teaching ministry of the Spirit. So now we're talking about ministries after conversion, and one of those ministries is the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit. On the night before Jesus was betrayed, he promised this in John 16. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. Contextually, this passage, first and foremost, has application for Christ's apostles who were used by the Lord to produce the New Testament, either directly or through what we would call an apostolic delegate, through apostolic delegates they appointed. So Luke obviously was not an apostle, but he wrote Luke-Acts. 
because he was designated by the apostles to write those books. As you study the life of Christ, it becomes apparent that Jesus put his divine imprimatur on the entire Old Testament. He said the scripture, referring to the Old Testament, can't be broken. He said it was inspired down to the smallest letter, Yod, and the smallest mark within a Hebrew letter. But here in John 16, Christ is telling these apostles that the Spirit who wrote the Old Testament will now guide them into all the truth, and he will bring to their remembrance all that he said to them. That's important. I mean, how could you recall every detail? By the Spirit of God, it's a divine book. Every word in the New Testament was written by God the Holy Spirit through his teaching ministry as he moved men along. That's the, that's the picture. It's a, it's a verb that was used of a sailboat where the wind would fill the sail and move it along. And, and so those who are inspired that Peter is describing in that text of Scripture, they're moved along by the Spirit of God. No interpretation of Scripture is a matter of one's own origination. Why? Because it didn't come from them. The Spirit of God using their personalities, their writing skills, their writing talents ministered the Word of God through them. While this ministry in many ways was unique to the apostles, thus closing the canon of Scripture, there's there's no new books being written because there's no apostles here to either write them or to approve them because there's no apostles today, right? I hope you know that. Say amen. Mm -hmm. All right. This ministry is not limited to them. So we have the new apostolic movement that is rooted and covered over in utter heresy. It's one of the most dangerous movements right now in Western Europe. And every once in a while, someone calls us in the Bible line and they ask us about it. 1 John 2.27, the Apostle John made it very clear that the Spirit's teaching ministry has application for all Christians today. Think this through. He writes, as for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. So Jesus promised to send the Holy Spirit to abide in us. And because the Spirit abides in us, he is able to teach us. That's what we just read. It was certainly in reference to the apostles, but the new covenant in the Old Testament says they'll all be taught of God, right? From the least of them to the greatest. That's one of the works of the Spirit of God. And so contextually, if you read it in the context of these verses, John is telling us that we can be protected against deceivers because we also have the anointing of the indwelling of the Spirit. The Spirit, by His direct illumination, can help us to understand the Bible. And so John can write, you have no need for anyone to teach you. He says, look, you've got the Spirit in you, you've got the anointing of God, and so when these false teachers would come along, and remember, a lot of the Bible was still in until it was being written, they immediately sensed, that's error, that's wrong, that's not true, because... The Spirit of God could reveal that. The promise of the new covenant is that God becomes real to us in a way that we have no need for a teacher, right? We're all taught of God, Paul will say. And that's what Jeremiah 31, 34 promised. We're taught of God. Now, with that said, hmm, 
passages throughout the New Testament refer not only to the general responsibility each believer has to teach, so 20 gifts listed in the New Testament, 16 absolutely being given today, and with the 16 non-signed gifts, there's a, um, there's a responsibility that every Christian shares. So you may have the gift of mercy, but every Christian is called to show mercy. Some of you here have the gift of serving. Every Christian is called to be a servant. Some people have the gift of teaching, the gift of pastor teacher, but every Christian is to grow up so they can teach on some level. By this time, you all, to make his writing a little Southern, y'all should be teachers but you have need of someone else to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, the writer of the Hebrews says. So these two truths together of the Spirit teaching us, while at the same time using teachers and us even teaching, must be kept in balance lest we become proud. So, you know, the guy who says, oh, I don't need a pastor. I, God teaches me. Or I saw some arrogant comment on Twitter the other day and and it was in reference to a particular study. And then this guy said, well, this pastor said, well, I don't, I don't read the commentaries. I just let God speak to me. What he was basically arrogantly saying is that God could only speak to him. And he couldn't speak to some other writer who maybe wrote a commentary on that. That's just pride. That's arrogance. Do not forget that in the context of this letter, as John writes the truth, he is in fact teaching those whom he says have no need of a teacher. Still another ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit after conversion that we should include is his praying ministry as he prays through us. A helpful passage on his praying ministry would be Romans 8, 26. Romans 8, the blank there is verse 26. Paul writes this to the Romans. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. It's very important that we understand the nature of the Spirit's help. The Greek verb here rendered help in verse, or helps plural in verse 26, is a word that was used by the ancients to refer to someone carrying one end of a log. That to me is very picturesque when you go into outside of the New Testament and you do some word studies in Koine Greek. And so a guy's got a log on this side and, you know, a long log and other guys on the other end. And so he's helping. He's helping. So what I'm saying here is the one who helps is literally helping. He's on the other side of a log. Please know that because the Spirit prays for us does not mean that he does all the praying for us. Rather, it is in our praying that he helps us. It is when we are praying and during those times when we are just ignorant as to how we should pray that we are promised his help. As Christians, we go to God's throne of grace for wisdom and courage and faith and consistency and purity and healing and forgiveness. And sometimes our dilemma is that we do not know exactly what the will of God is. This is the time that the Apostle Paul is referring to when the Spirit in our ignorance helps us by carrying the load. So in other words, you don't have to be paralyzed. Well, I don't know, you know, should I, should I pray for God to take grandma home with the Lord or should we pray that he would somehow heal her and sustain her longer? 
And so some people are like paralyzed because they're not sure what the will of God is. And you pray and God the Spirit will intercede for you. That he would carry out this praying ministry is not surprising to us since one of the titles that Jesus uses in John's gospel to describe the Holy Spirit is that of helper. Sometimes in the middle of a trial or a challenge or in our suffering, we miss what God is wanting to accomplish in our lives. And so God in our weakness helps us through the Spirit's praying ministry. The Spirit takes your prayer and puts that prayer in a form that is acceptable to the Son, who in turn mediates it to the Father. So, you know, sometimes we think of Christ as the only one who is involved in the mediation of our prayers, but it starts with the Spirit who goes to the one mediator who takes it to the Father. And so He helps us in our prayers. Other ministries of the Spirit after conversion that we could highlight would include His guiding ministry and leading us or His assuring ministry in reference to our salvation, like Romans 8, 16, right? The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we've become children of God. And by the way, in our course on pneumatology, there's hundreds of pages if you want to study some of these issues in greater depth. We could also speak of his comforting ministry in our heartache when he comes as the comforter and gives us comfort. Um, in Acts chapter 9, a powerful chapter of Scripture, and there's a verse that I think is often overlooked, but I love this verse. In Acts 9.31, it, it, it says, I think I wrote it down, yeah, Acts 9.31. Um, there it is. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit of God brings comfort, and sometimes it's just unexplainable, like how he is pulling this off, but there's just a sense often through Scripture that he floods your mind with, that he just lets you know that everything's okay and everything's in control. But sometimes he does it in non-conventional ways. Uh, this verse, I think, is interesting uh, Paul, it's, it's 2 Corinthians 7, he says, for even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh, our, our bodies here, had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within, but God who comforts the depressed. Wait a minute, Paul got depressed? I thought spiritual people didn't get depressed. Paul got depressed. And usually you get depressed when there's in a good way when there's total physical exhaustion. And sometimes the most spiritual thing someone can do is get a good night's sleep. <laughs> so God who comforts the depressed comforted us, how? By the coming of Titus. So here the Spirit of God comforted Paul and his teammates, how? Through another individual, namely Titus. We have observed there are a number of ministries of the Spirit that take place not only before we are saved, but at the moment we are saved. He performs such works as convicting us of sin, and that's why you should pray to God about men before you talk to men about God, because no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. 
And God's spirit is the one who convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so he convicts us of sin and then indwelling us, baptizing us, sealing us, and gifting us for service in the local church. And then beyond those ministries that happen before salvation, and then at the moment we are saved, he has many ongoing ministries, including guiding, assuring, praying, teaching, and comforting ministries. It is important to note, for instance, that we are never commanded to be taught or comforted or guided or assured or prayed for by the Spirit. However, we are commanded to be filled with the Spirit. That's an imperative. It's a command. We're commanded to be filled with the Spirit. Why? Because the Spirit's freedom in our lives to guide, comfort, assure, and pray for us is directly related to His filling ministry in our lives. So, for instance, if the Bible has become dry to you, maybe the Spirit of God is not illuminating it to you for the simple reason that you're not filled with Him. And so many of the progressive ministries of the Spirit of God are predicated on our being filled with Him. For this reason, we are spending an entire section of this course, discovery class, on being filled with the Spirit. Because from the perspective of victorious living and maturing and serving, this ministry is critical to all that we are and do. And as in most realms of biblical theology, a clear definition of a particular doctrine is critically important to our understanding of that particular doctrine and for its daily application in our lives. So definition is critical. Since being filled with the Spirit is essential for a lifestyle that is pleasing to the Lord, we want to be clear, we want to be crystal clear as to all that it entails. And so, first, we want to clearly define the meaning of being filled with the Spirit because a wrong definition leads to a false outcome. However, it is equally important that we examine the preconditions for being and staying filled with the Spirit as a way of life. All right? With me? We're going to get through these 12 pages, God willing. (laughs) Roman numeral three. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Learning how to be filled by the Spirit of God. And by the way, when I uh, have a major Roman numeral, if you are taking these courses, I will often put kind of a summary paragraph of what we're trying to accomplish in this section, all right? Learning how to be filled by the Spirit of God is one of the most important discoveries of your Christian life. The early church as they were controlled and empowered by the Holy Spirit, which, by the way, is what it means to be filled, as we'll see next time, as they were controlled and filled by the Holy Spirit, were able to turn the world upside down. Christ's own apostles, after they received and walked in the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit, were changed from fearful men to becoming powerful witnesses for Christ. Sadly, as we've been learning, the average Christian today has languished in spiritual infancy because of their ignorance of all that God has provided to live an abundant and fruitful Christian life. So we spoke of three categories, natural man, lost people, spiritual man, the spirit-filled, growing Christian, and the carnal, worldly, fleshly, born-again person. If Dr. Billy Graham was right, 90 to 95% of those in the body of Christ fall into that third category. They just never grew up. They remained infants. We had a dear family here years ago, great brother, 
And they brought their little child, and they were with us, I think, for seven years, and we watched them grow from about two till nine. And even as a nine-year-old, he was in a stroller, and they would cart him around the building, and he never progressed past 18 months. And it was a heartbreak. The, the child wasn't supposed to live longer than three or four years. But he lived as long as he did. But it was a heartbreak, and it is a heartbreak to God Almighty when his children remain infantile, baby believers, because they have not learned to consistently walk in the power of the Spirit. J.B. Phillips, in his classic work, Letters to Young Churches, he wrote that in 1951. I love that book. He wrote, the great difference between present-day Christianity and that of which we read in these letters, the New Testament epistles, is that to us, it is primarily a performance. To them, it was a real experience. We're apt to reduce the Christian life to a code or at best, a rule of heart and life. To these men, it is quite plainly the invasion of their lives by a new quality of life altogether. They do not hesitate to describe this as Christ living in them. Now, this same power that the early church knew so well, the power of the risen Christ made known through the Holy Spirit is still available to the believer who walks in his fullness. If you are not already experiencing the abundant life that Christ promised, and if you're not already involved in pointing people to the forgiveness of the cross, I maybe should have added as a way of life, his same filling is available to every single believer today. So let's first talk about the meaning of the word filled. Essential to understanding what it means to be filled with the Spirit is to understand the analogy the Apostle Paul gives in Ephesians 5.18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. So the comparison between drunkenness and the Spirit of God filling us provides a critical clue to the idea of control. Both drunk and Spirit-filled persons are controlled people and that they are under the influence either of alcohol or of the Holy Spirit. When one is under the influence of alcohol, he is able to do things that are unnatural to him. Just as when one is controlled by the Spirit, he's able to do things that are supernatural to him, right? Booze that controls your walk and your talk. Even so, when you are filled with the Spirit of God. In either situation, if one is filled with alcohol or if one is filled with the Spirit, in both cases, the individual chooses to lose control. You take that glass of wine, you are choosing to have a buzz mind. You're disobeying God Almighty. And that's why I say I've never met a pastor who drinks alcohol that is being used of God with any power or consistently invites people and leads people into the kingdom of God. I don't know of one. Now, sometimes God works in spite of people, like through a Jim Baker or a Jim, Jimmy Swaggett, who were living immorally in the 80s, and people still came to the Lord. Why? Because of the power of God's Word. But it wasn't because of them, it was in spite of them. What number are we on? Six. It is by a choice that one willfully abandons his own self-control to the influence of either alcohol or the influence of the Holy Spirit. Now, clearly, this is not to imply that the Spirit-filled Christian is erratic or abnormal. 
you know, like he's some robotic person. The truth is, is that, one, that when one gives the control of his life to the Holy Spirit, it means he chooses a life no longer governed by self, but by the Spirit. The verb used in this verse translated be filled is a command. And so being filled is not an option for the obedient Christian. Every Christian is expected to be filled with the Spirit. By the way, the context, you know, he's talking about, among other things, about how to have a good marriage. You got a crummy marriage? You're probably not filled with the Spirit. Let God fill husband and wife, and he creates love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You don't need the psychobabble, typically, of some counselor. What most people need is to learn how to walk in the Spirit. The Spirit-filled life is not for the spiritually elite, but is possible and is expected for every believer as a part of the normal Christian life. The tense of the verb in the original Greek is a a Greek tense, present active indicative, if you care to know clearly indicating that the filling of the Spirit is a repeated and ongoing experience. In other words, you could literally translate it, be you being filled with the Spirit. Be constantly, moment by moment. That's the sense of the verb. In English, we typically have the kind of time, past, or the time of time, past, present, and future. But in Greek, you can have the kind of time. This is what we call a present active indicative. It's ongoing. This verb can be paraphrased, keep on being filled, reminding us that a Christian may be filled and filled and be filled still again. This repeating being filled with the Spirit, this repeated filling with this Holy Spirit, is clearly illustrated through the experience of the apostles during the early months of the church. We're told in Acts 2.4, on the day of Pentecost, and they were all filled with, with the Holy Spirit. And that's, of course, what you would expect, right? Yet a few days later, after they had their first encounter with persecution, the Bible informs us they had a prayer meeting asking for boldness. And this same group was filled again with the Holy Spirit. The text says, and when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. They're there pleading God, look, God, they hate us. They want to kill us. We need your help. We know the commission. And God gives them a new expression of the fullness of the Spirit. This passage is very helpful in that we learn that the apostles and others did not need to be filled with the Spirit this second time because of some specific sin that had come into their lives. On this occasion, they needed to be filled with the Spirit because they needed the control and the power of the Holy Spirit in a new area. You may be walking with God, and then God provides an opportunity for ministry, and you say, out of a heart of weakness and brokenness, Lord Jesus, help me. Fill me. Give me the grace to speak. They needed to be filled anew in order to know boldness in witnessing in light of being threatened and prohibited to speak by the Sanhedrin. It might be something as I dealt with a person in a store recently, and this person was just like, <laughs> just rude. I said, Lord Jesus, help me. You don't want to return evil for evil, do you? Or insult for insult. 
A gentle answer turns away wrath. So in that moment, God gives you the grace as you, it's not that you're in sin, you just need a new infilling for a moment. Very often, however, number 20 in the believer's life, repeated fillings of the Spirit may be necessary because new areas in our lives come to light which need to be brought under the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. It is equally true that Christians need to be filled with the Spirit again when by our own sinful choices we break the control of the Spirit. We'll talk about this next time. Unfortunately, the filling of the Spirit and the baptism of the Spirit are sometimes not carefully distinguished. And so in some Christian circles, the emphasis is first on conversion, first get saved, and then to be baptized in the Spirit. While the book of Acts records various examples of the Spirit's baptism, like on Pentecost or is seen in Cornelius' home, the only explanation of what actually happens positionally is not given in Acts. The explanation as to the meaning of the baptism of the Spirit is explained in the epistles and passages like we've already read, 1 Corinthians 12, for by one Spirit we're all baptized into one body, Jews, Greeks, slaves, free, all made to drink of the same Holy Spirit. The baptizing ministry of the Spirit results in a new position and that we are immediately joined to the body of Christ which is a common New Testament metaphor for the church. So when we speak of the body of Christ, it's used interchangeably with the term church. Church not being a building, of course. The term church is never used of a building. Now it is in our day, obviously, and we have to communicate, but we don't so much go to church. We are the church. We are the church. And so the church is comprised of all who are truly saved. For this reason, we can say with great confidence that it is never a repeated experience because once salvation takes place in the human heart, it can never be reversed. The Bible teaches the eternal security of the believer such that once we are joined to Jesus Christ, we can never be unjoined from Christ. The tense of the verb baptize that God uses in 1 Corinthians 12, 13 is what we call an heiress passive indicating an accomplished act never to be repeated again. Remember, in Greek, you not only have the time of time, but the kind of time. An heiress passes, it's on, it's over, it will never happen again, like the resurrection. Based on this, the only conclusion one can make is that the baptizing work of the Spirit is accomplished in the heart of every believer. The confusion between the baptism and the filling of the Holy Spirit usually leads to false conclusions about how to be filled with the Spirit. False conclusions. And so I know we're isolating one of the pre-conversion or at-conversion ministries, but this is a big one. And unfortunately, it is now raising its head through groups like Bethel and Hillsong that is just covered over in error in many of them now in heresy. There were some good people in its founding, but now they have deviated and they've created a lot of confusion in the body of Christ. Uh, The baptism versus the filling of the Spirit. The baptism versus the filling of the Spirit. Remember the very first time the Spirit was given, the 120 disciples were in Jerusalem in the upper room, in an upper room, praying and waiting for His coming. Many wrongly conclude from this event that the filling of the Spirit is an answer to some kind of prolonged and agonizing prayer. And so, again, you meet 
Pentecostals, charismatic, new apostolic movement. And I know they're all kind of grouped together with evangelicals, but biblically, historically, theologically, they're not. But I know, you know, they say, oh, this Pentecostal, you know, they're evangelicals, and they do it for political counting and all these other things. But there's a difference. Even charismatics are not the same as Pentecostals. Pentecostals represent denominations. Charismatic represent uh, that, that were founded on quote-unquote Pentecostal doctrine. Charismatics represent mainline churches that began to express some of these Pentecostal leanings. But in these groups, they'll say, well, first you're saved. Now you need to agonize and pray so that you can get the baptism of the Spirit. Typically, they would say associated with speaking in tongues. The false deduction, and by the way, if you want to study speaking in tongues, take the spiritual gifts course or just download section six of the spiritual gifts course and listen to the messages associated with that. And I go through all the frills and quirks and weird stuff that when you start thinking and reading the text of Scripture, you say, this is nuts. It really is. This false deduction is rooted in a failure to distinguish between the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Spirit occurs only once and is assumed to be true for every child of God. We've already discussed that. By contrast, the filling of the Spirit is a repeated experience. And let me just say parenthetically, there are Pentecostals who truly are born again and know Christ. So I'm not dismissing that. But because experience is placed above sola scriptura, experience should always be submitted to the authority of Scripture. You can say, I had this experience, therefore it must be true, and let me find a verse to baptize it in. No, your experience needs to be interpreted under the authority of Scripture. And so in this coming time frame that Jesus spoke of in the Olivet Discourse, these men who are going to come and perform great signs, wonders, and miracles, people are going to say, he's a man of God, look what he did. And Jesus said, don't be deceived. Because the experience is true. There was a guy named Father Diorio in Worcester, Massachusetts in the 1980s. And he filled auditoriums of five and 10,000 people and did all kinds of healings but he denied the gospel itself. But people said, he must be a man of God. I had this experience. Remember, Satan is a great counterfeiter. So by contrast, the filling of the Spirit is a repeated experience. The baptism of the Holy Spirit never happened before the day of Pentecost, whereas the filling of the Holy Spirit occurred during the Old Testament era on selected individuals chosen by God. The baptism of the Spirit is true of all believers and can never be undone, whereas the filling of the Spirit is initially true of all Christians, but it is not necessarily experienced at all, time, at all times and can be lost. In other words, you could be filled this evening, and tomorrow morning you might not be filled. And we'll talk about that next time. The baptizing ministry of the Spirit gives us a new position in Christ, whereas the filling ministry of the Holy Spirit gives us his power. So a chart I made many, many years ago, trying to contrast the two. Spirit baptism happens only once. 
Spirit fillings repeated, never before Pentecost, whereas the filling of the Spirit occurred in the Old Testament. Spirit baptism is true of all believers. Spirit filling is not necessarily true. That's why it needs to be commanded. Spirit baptism can never be undone, whereas the filling of the Spirit can be lost. One results in position, the other in power. As noted, the baptizing work of the Spirit occurs the moment we believe in Jesus. And there are no prerequisites except faith in Christ. You don't have to wait and long and have some kind of experience, be slain in the Spirit, faint, speak in a tongue. You believe in the gospel, and you are immediately, instantaneously, eternally identified with the body of Christ. With this said, there are certain preconditions a Christian must meet if he's going to be filled with the Spirit as a way of life. Our Father, we do thank you that you didn't leave us as orphans. Lord Jesus, just as you promised, you sent the Spirit, and he is so much like you that you can say, I will come to you. We're so thankful that you have given us a means in which to carry out the commands of Holy Scripture. And so you said, as a man has received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. So teach us with the same brokenness that we came to the cross, unable to say ourselves, to walk in the Spirit's power. Thank you, too, for the hundreds of boxes that were taken, packed, and even some that will be taken this Sunday before the final closeout. We pray for each child that will receive a box in whatever country it might be and the evangelistic literature that will be in his language, that you would speak to them and bring many children and adults into the kingdom through the grace and love shown through your people. We pray for the church in the Ukraine and the incredible day they had yesterday, now with no heat or electricity across the nation. Those without wood heat are cold. We don't know how to pray for them. Spirit of God, we're so thankful that even when we don't know how to pray, you intercede on our behalf. We pray you'd be with them, that you'd protect them. The hundreds who have died in these last few days and the incredible grief, we pray the church would rise up like a mighty army and in the midst of people's grief, they would point them to the hope of the cross and to eternal life. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.